Welcome to Ask a Lawyer with me, Steve Sleeper. Our guest today is attorney Larry Foreman with Foreman and Associates, the DUI guy in Louisville, Kentucky. He has over 225 cases amended, down, dismissed, or acquitted by a jury. I began the interview by asking Larry about himself and his firm. I started out as a solo back in 2013, and we have since grown to a company that owns its own building on 4th Street in Old Louisville here in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, and we currently have, at last count, I think it's either 13 or 14 employees. That's impressive. And and I know that you're the, the DUI guy plus, so let's talk a little bit about DUI defense then. Sure. What should I expect from a good DUI defense lawyer? You should expect someone who litigates cases. That is always the number one thing that I tell clients. Um, And the reason I say that, because the term to win a DUI case is a very loose term. And Mm -hmm. everybody from the public to prosecutors, to police, to judges, to clients, to attorneys defines, quote unquote, winning differently to the majority. Anything other than the charge as is, is considered a victory. That's a win. So Mm -hmm. if you get even a DUI, let's say with an aggravating circumstance in Kentucky, which carries mandatory minimum jail and mandatory ignition interlock, for instance, amended down to a non-aggravated DUI, I mean, one might argue it's still a DUI, true, but you have just removed the mandatory jail time and the mandatory ignition interlock, which now becomes optional. So that is a win. Now, a more extreme win would be to be able to amend, let's say, the DUI uh, first offense with an aggravator down to a reckless driving, because now the DUI goes away completely. Now, that is also a very, very difficult result to obtain, especially uh, depending on the facts of the case and the circumstances arising that surrounding the DUI, if you will. Which brings me back to point number one. Why did I say litigator? What is a litigator? A litigator is someone who tries cases. There is no other way to spin it. An attorney who litigates, who takes cases to jury trial, even if they lose all of them, let's say they're a young attorney and they've had five trials and they lost every single one, but they're trying. What's happening is number one, they're learning. Mm -hmm. Number two, they're gaining experience. Number three, they're gaining a reputation. When they say they're going to take a case to trial, they will take the case to trial. And the uh, the people on the inside of the system, if you will, namely prosecutors and judges, will begin recognizing that lawyer's name. And I can speak from personal experience because there were counties I would show up and they would be like, oh, you're that guy. I've heard of you. And... Mm. You think it's a bad thing because they're like, ooh, I've been being singled out. All to the contrary. They know you by reputation because they know, and in my case, I did have several victories at jury trial under my belt. And sometimes prosecutors will think twice about giving you an offer of a guilty plea when they know if you take this to trial, you're probably going to beat them. Uh, But a prosecutor, let's say if you have an attorney who's been litigating, excuse me, who has been practicing 20 years, but has not been litigating 
a single case. I mean, there is zero incentive for the prosecutor to give them an offer or their client an offer they can't refuse because they they know there's a 0% chance you're going to go to trial anyway. You're going to settle. There's a 100% chance of settlement. So even if it's a slam dunk, hypothetically speaking for the defense, the prosecution could still go, I don't care. Here's a guilty plea form. Fill it out. How many of your cases go to trial percentage wise extremely small yeah. uh, i i keep statistics on everything uh i can tell you out of the last 2000 dui cases that we have been representing people on uh only two percent about 40 actually ended up going to trial now there's a caveat there is another, I couldn't even tell you how many, this number is non-existent because you can't really, I would have to go back and there's no really way to pinpoint this, is how many got set to go to trial, but ended up not going for one reason or another, usually the prosecution settling. Uh, very rarely did we settle. I had at least one or two cases that come to mind where the client just decided to take the deal at the 11th hour, even though they paid for trial, we prepared for trial and the stress. I mean, that's the only thing that really could change a scenario where a client wants to go to trial and uh, gives up at the 11th hour is the stress gets to them and they decide to back out at the last minute. And that only happened, you know, less than one tenth of 1% of all cases I've ever had. So wouldn't even call that uh, really a number. Statistically speaking, about one out of 50 cases will actually see the light of a jury, in our firm, at least. I I know some states look at mistakes cops make with a, with a DUI, with a DUI arrest, and, you know, if there's a few mistakes there, the case can get dismissed, uh, or the, the, the defense attorney can get the case dismissed. Other states, not so much. You know, uh, they're looking at the video, like the the body cam video, and the, the you know, almost no matter what happens, if it looks like the guy is drunk or stoned or something like that, then it's it's tough to get it dismissed. What's it like in in, in Kentucky? Because I know cops are humans; they make mistakes. Let me take a step back and answer that question from the side. There are really two ways to win a DUI case: two and only two. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with The Art of War by Sun Tzu, one of my favorite books. I, I have it on audio. I listen to it at least twice a year because uh, every time I listen to it, I, I learn something new, even though it's, it seems like it's the same text. But Sun Tzu said there are really two ways to win a battle, the direct way and the indirect way. And the same is applied to DUI cases. The direct way in this case is on the facts and the indirect way is on the law. So if you have, and I get these phone calls all the time, you know, uh, the individual was clearly intoxicated. There was video of them being intoxicated, slurring their words. Uh, maybe uh, they swerved off the road. Maybe they blew a tire. I mean, it could be anything. Maybe they hit another vehicle. Maybe they hit a parked car. It's, it's just really, really bad on its face. But then you look at the case and you realize there's some potentially constitutional violations. There's some suppressible issues. Maybe there was the stop is unconstitutional. The arrest was improper. They weren't Mirandized or the field sobriety tests were conducted after they were clearly in custody. And we can get those excluded due to a lack of Miranda. I mean, all these sorts of 
hybrid things allow us to approach the case in a way that, and again, people, my favorite question is, you know, how do you represent someone who is clearly did it or clearly guilty? And I'm like, okay, first of all, the only individuals who have the ability to determine guilt or innocence is a jury, number one. So your statement in and of itself is a misnomer. How do you represent a guilty person is is a misnomer. I mean, unless they were already found guilty by a jury, then I wouldn't be representing them, first of all. Second of all, uh, how do I represent, this is the more proper question, how do I represent someone who clearly comes into my office, says they drank one billion beers, and now uh, wants a proper defense? The answer is very simple. The Constitution permits me to do so. Right. The Constitution states that I am permitted to put the prosecution to their burden of proof, regardless of the evidence, regardless of the facts. And it is because the defense has no burden. The defense is simply there to make sure that the prosecution meets their burden, which is beyond the reasonable doubt if it goes to trial or probable cause when it comes to an arrest. That's it. And that is where the quote unquote winning on the law comes in. So you can win on the facts, you can win on the law, and it all depends on the type of case that's in front of you to determine which route you're going to take. And number two, how successful you're going to be. Let's talk about um, a DUI first. I get pulled over. Uh, They run some tests. Cop has probable cause to arrest me. What happens after that? What happens after I'm arrested? So after you are arrested, you are going to be uh, nine times out of 10 taken to the jail or one times out of 10 taken to the hospital. If they want to draw blood or if you imply that you will consent to blood, they usually will take you to the hospital. Uh, Otherwise, they'll simply ask for you to submit to a breath test initially, unless they suspect drugs, marijuana, pills, cocaine, etc. At the jail, you will be read something known as the implied consent. Uh, Same goes for the hospital. And the implied consent is a very simple standard. All 50 states have it simply states, uh, I have reason to believe you're operating a motor vehicle under the influence as an officer of the law, and I'm asking you to comply with, you know, breath, blood, urine, whatever your state has. We have kind of eliminated urine. Our court very aptly stated that urine is the expulsion of the chemicals from the body. Therefore, it's not as reliable as breath or blood, which is uh, instruments that determine alcohol or drugs in your system at the time of the taking of the sample. Mm -hmm. Again, the implied consent is a very, the defense attorneys that I know were good friends of mine, the top, top, you know, litigators for DUIs in the country have attacked the implied consent in ways that uh, you, you wouldn't even imagine because it seems to be an unconstitutional punishment for your right to exercise your fourth amendment right to be free from search and seizure. Hmm. The government is telling you submit to this breath test or else we're going to take your license. That's literally what they're saying. Unfortunately, Supreme courts all across our nation have ruled universally. We don't have a SCOTUS Supreme court of the United States opinion on this yet. Uh, But essentially we all, but need it at this point, it's, it's irrelevant. All States have kind of decided that the punishment under the implied consent law is uh, administrative, not punitive. 
and therefore we can do it, uh, they said, basically. And that means if you choose to refuse, we will take your license away. Uh, now, to that, I say, <laughs> here's my license. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Uh, in all but 11 states, by the way, I've learned this from fellow attorneys of mine, because on my card, I say, you know, on the back of my business card, there's a whole text of uh, I'm refusing any chemical tests. I, I understand my license may be suspended. Um, the exception, of course, is commercial driver's license operators and pilots because they're subject to the FAA and the FMCSA. And it gets a little more difficult. And I suggest those comply uh, because the penalties for uh, refusal of the implied consent is way worse for those two categories. Right. But for in 39 states, unless you are a CDL, a commercial driver's license operator or a pilot, I highly encourage, suggest to refuse. Now, in Kentucky, that is legal advice. Everywhere else, it is a suggestion from a licensed and experienced professional. Now, the 11 states, uh, Nebraska, Minnesota, I believe Nevada, and a few others, basically it's that part of the country, they did something barbaric. Uh, They decided to turn a DUI refusal into a separate crime. So you could be faced with a situation where, let's say you're in Nebraska. My good friend, Bell Island, um, will attest to this. He's actually the one who first brought this to my attention. Let's say you're in Nebraska and you refuse the breathalyzer. In your case, you know, I don't know, you're sleeping in the car, no driving, engine off. You're in the back seat. Heck, you're sleeping in a trunk. Let's make this easy. You know, <laughs> it's just a slam dunk victory. But you refuse the chemical test at the at the police station. The problem is, and this is what Bell will tell you, is, oh, I can win the DUI, no problem. But you are now going to be convicted of the separate crime of refusing to blow into the breathalyzer and submitting to the chemical test, which, again, is complete nonsense in my mind. But unfortunately, some states elected to do that. And like I said, as far as I know, uh, at last count, there's 11 of them. And those are the only exception. And most of them, I believe, are in the Western United States. Okay. The... Roadside breath tests in Kentucky, is it the uh, uh, the breathalyzer and the walk and turn and the um, pen in front of the eye? Is that it, or does that all happen at the station house? Okay, that is a great question, and I apologize for not clarifying it at the outset. So as far as I know, as far as I have learned, this applies to Kentucky and all other 49 states. Again, not legal advice for the other 49, but it is legal advice in Kentucky. The standardized field sobriety test can be refused with zero consequence other than getting arrested. And I strongly, highly encourage, especially if you're in Kentucky, to refuse those tests. Right. The police officer cannot force you into complying with the standardized field sobriety test, the battery of the walk and turn, the one leg stand, and the horizontal gaze nystagmus, which is also known as the follow my finger test. Mm -hmm. The preliminary breath test is not technically a field sobriety test in the strictest sense, although it is looked at as a a tool used by law enforcement to confirm or deny their suspicion 
of whether or not an individual is under the influence or not. Now, a very funny thing happens if the preliminary breath test is administered before the three test battery, because now the police officer's decisions are going to be colored by the number that they just saw. So if it's below, they may just ignore it, pretend like it doesn't exist and still show a bunch of clues or claim that they've seen a bunch of clues rather. Uh, Or if it's over 0.08, then, I mean, again, you're back to square one. Oh, this individual is clearly under the influence. They're going to be looking through the test, looking at the test through the lens of a guilty person, basically, as they're quote unquote grading you. And there's not really a grade. It's not a pass or fail. They're simply looking for clues as any experienced Uh, non-lying police officer, if you can find them, will tell you. Uh, They're just looking for clues. It's not really a pass or fail. But the manual does state if there are two clues or more on each test, four for the HGN, two for the one leg stand, two for the walk and turn, or more, it is considered that the individual might be under the influence. That is indicia of intoxication. So the field sobriety test, the three that we talked about, also known as the battery of tests, can be refused, at least in Kentucky, I can tell you with confidence. And and there's nothing that they can do to you. There's no separate charge. I think one time I've seen an officer charge a client with uh, obstructing police operations or some horse crap like that. I've never seen it before in my life. Uh, It was quickly dismissed, but they tried. They just, I think they were just angry that the person was exercising their constitutional right to not to incriminate themselves. And they're like, what can I get them on? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, it quickly failed. It didn't, it didn't hold muster for more than a couple of months until we got the prosecutor to dismiss it. The preliminary breath test as well. Not only can it be refused with no consequences by the side of the road, it is also inadmissible in court, except there's a case called green V Commonwealth that very clearly states preliminary breath tests are only admissible for purposes of showing that the police officer had probable cause to arrest the individual for the offense of DUI. Now, there is one exception, and it has nothing to do with the prosecution. This is entirely on the defense attorney. If you do have a case where the police officer administers a preliminary breath test and chooses to record whether by video or in the citation what the number was because oftentimes they will simply write alcohol uh, uh, the PBT the preliminary breath test determined that alcohol was present but if they do choose to include the number and if it is below 0.08 which I have seen that can be admissible by motion of the defense for purposes of, as an exculpatory piece of evidence, essentially, for purposes of the defense at trial. I have successfully been able to use it. I think it is very, in full disclosure, I think it is very easily uh, counterable by the prosecution. All they simply have to do is object, and they will probably win nine times out of 10 because the statute is extremely clear. But I think there's still an argument to be made, and as we all know in the criminal defense world, if you can make an argument with a straight face, by all means, do it and see what happens. You know, you never know. I have made arguments that uh, maybe were not the best or not the most um, I had the most confidence in, but were granted because I tried. And for whatever reason, sometimes the reason you don't even expect 
a judge will agree or a prosecutor will fail to object or will not know how to properly object. Because again, you're operating under the assumption that the prosecution is going to be ready for everything you have coming their way because you know the answer. You know the answer is no, this is not admissible. But if they don't know that, well, you get the windfall. Our thanks to attorney Larry Foreman in Louisville, Kentucky for being our guest on Ask a Lawyer with Steve Sleeper. His phone number is 502-931-6788, and his website is foremanandassociates.com.